Good evening, and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. Again, that's 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls. We've been on the air here at Red River Radio for over nine years. I'm ready to answer your questions about birds this evening, so let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. We're going to start with a recap of last month's conservation tip. We end every episode with a couple minutes of a tip that you can maybe incorporate into your day, into your life, to make a difference for birds and nature, and a lot of them actually are good for the pocketbook. So last month we ended with a conservation tip of of don't bag your leaves in fall. Instead, use them for composting. Use them by spreading them generously in your wildscape, your flower beds. We talk about wildscapes on this show. Those are that's landscaping for wildlife. So not just pretty flowers and pretty colored berries, but actually flowers that give back to nature. They have nectar for insects and birds. Berries that are from native species that are edible by birds and not from an invasive exotic species of plant. So we tend to put millions of bags of leaves of grass clippings and pine straw out the curb in the city and we let the city haul them off, but really we don't need to do that. Um, So put them in a compost pile. I do that. I mix it with kitchen scraps. That was another conservation tip in the past. And I mix it up every so often. I churn it um, just with a pitchfork. And uh, if it rains a lot, that's really good. If it's too dry, if we are in a drought period, I wet it down periodically. That helps it really compost down. And it's amazing that you can have this giant heap of compost and give it six, eight, 12 months, and it's down to a, just a little bucket full. So, but super rich, su- super good stuff for your plants. And, and putting the leaf litter in your flower beds and your wildscape, it's, it's good for a lot of birds. There are a lot of birds that scratch around for seeds and insects in the leaf litter. So keep plastic bags out of the landfill, save some money by doing so, and then you know use that as the leaf litter as a protective layer over the soil. Um, if you're if you're into tomatoes, I, I've grown tomatoes, and you don't want exposed soil, so you you want to put something over the ground underneath your tomatoes, especially when they're little. And pine straw works super good; they they like that acidity, but any kind of mulch will will work just to keep that sun from cooking the soil. So again, keep keep your leaves out of bags, out of the landfill, and and use them for nature. Before we do our profile species, I have to remind listeners, especially at our latitude, Texas, Louisiana, roughly in that ballpark, is it's been a huge push of ruby-throated hummingbirds. So it's not new, happens every year, 
it usually is an eye-opener to some that September is the big month for the big push of birds that bred to our north that are making their way south, and they, they come through Texas and Louisiana and other states to go to uh, Mexico and points farther south. So if you have a lot of ruby-throated hummingbirds, this is the time you put up extra feeders, and we do. We usually just run one feeder through the spring and summer, but once September rolls around, we put up extra feeders, and it, it pays off. So I've talked to a lot of folks. They've already talked they're talking about how it's uh, lots of numbers of ruby throats. So, and th that's the dominant hummingbird that comes through the southeast. If you if you can get a picture of something that looks different, like one that looks like a newly minted shiny copper penny, then you you might have a rufus. Um, and there's other species as well, but 99% of them are probably ruby throats in our area. But they are coming through. This is migration. This is southbound migration, and it's. A lot of fun to watch them. So put out your feeder, put extra feeders out, and enjoy the ruby throats. Tonight for our profile, we're going to talk about the brown-headed cowbird. It's a member of the family of blackbirds, grackles, and orioles. Let's listen to the bubbly gurgles and rattle of the brown-headed cowbird. Some of that doesn't even sound like a bird. But all that stuff in the foreground is a brown-headed cowbird. You can hear a common yellow throat, witchety, witchety, witchety in the background, but we're listening to the stuff in the foreground. Let's listen. Wicked, I mean like computers can't even make cool. There's no dial tone as cool as that. So the brown-headed cowbird is a small, stocky bird the sexes look quite different. The male has a dark iridescent body with a non-iridescent flat brown colored head. The male's brown head against a mostly black body is where the bird gets its name. The female cowbird is more of a dull gray brown without any hint of shiny iridescence. This cowbird ranges across most of North America, including the southern half of Canada, the lower 48 states, and south through central Mexico. The cowbird is a brood parasite, meaning the females lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. This bird tagged alongside the ever-moving bison eating insects and seeds kicked up by that grazing mammal. Since this cowbird originally had to roam like the bison, it didn't have enough time to stay in one place long enough to raise young cowbirds. So instead, they dump their eggs in the nest of an unsuspecting host bird usually one that's roughly the same size. When the host temporarily leaves the nest, the female cowbird sneaks in, ejects the host egg, and replaces it with one of her own. That host bird, which includes over 220 species of birds in North America, raises the young cowbird as if it's one of its own. Today, of course, the roaming bison have been replaced with sedentary cat, cattle, but the odd nesting behavior of the brown-headed cowbird isn't going to change. This cowbird is found either within or flying over just about every type of habitat imaginable, 
including our urban centers. To see a photo showing both sexes of the brown-headed cowbird photographed by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. Okay, I'm excited to bring in a guest. We have a guest, but we have a caller first. So why don't we do the caller, and I'll do that real quick, and we'll get our guest on. So let's see. We have Stumpy from Fishville. Stumpy, can you hear me? I got you loud and clear. Okay. What, what do you got for us today? Well, you know, I talked to you uh, in the spring about the brown-headed uh, cowbird, and my question is, uh, am I going to see the same ones when they come back south, or will they be the different groups? So if you, if you named them Bob and Susie and Joe, <laughs> are those same three birds going to come through? Your, your guess is as good as mine. Without, without individually marking birds, we will never know that answer. I got you. And, when are we going to be seeing them? They're about ready to start moving south. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've been seeing them already. There's a there's a migratory pre-migratory roost site in my town of scissor tail flycatchers and eastern kingbirds, and I go out in the evening, and uh, there's always flocks small, twenty to thirty. May, there was one flock of fifty brown-headed cowbirds also going to roost, um, not not in the same trees with the flycatchers but so they're around there they're not many months of the year that we can't see a brown-headed cowbird they're they're usually here but they're thickest in in migration for sure yeah well how far north do they migrate they they breed all the way up into uh central i'm sorry southern canada they get you know deep into north into saskatchewan alberta um and 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 they come through south and and usually some will winter with us and some will go even farther south, but they have a pretty tremendous range in North America, uh, Canada, U.S., and, and Mexico. Now, maybe I'm confused with uh, the, the different bird, but are these the ones that uh, will lay eggs in other birds' nests? Yeah, yeah, and, and I mentioned that just now mm-hmm. with, with okay. the uh, profile. And I did, what I didn't mention, though, I should, is that a lot of people see a big, tall white bird around cattle, and they think that's a cowbird, but that's the cattle egret. So very different. And, and we've, oh, yeah. we've already profiled that one, I believe. And so this is a little bitty brown bird that's smaller than a red-winged blackbird, a little bigger than a bluebird, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. I had uh, about 20 or 30 of them for I don't know how many weeks I enjoyed them. Yeah. Uh, and I had one... Uh, uh, a, a bully bird. What the heck? I got brain fog about it. But he picked on him every every evening. Yeah, <laughs> great. Okay, yeah. well, well, thanks for the call, and keep watching for those brown headed cowbirds. All right, tonight I'm very excited to introduce our guest. Dr. Van Remsen is joining us via Zoom. He's uh, emeritus professor of LSU Baton Rouge, and and uh, Dr. Remsen, thank you for joining us. It's an honor, Cliff. Great. Um, so, did y'all have any cool cool weather like we did? I, I think the lows this uh, morning. Oh, were... this morning was fantastic. Yeah, it, it yeah. was twenty degrees. The highest since May. Nice, nice. Well, gl- good to hear that. Maybe fall is is here, and the hot stuff is behind us. I hope so. Um, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. Normally, the 
the the person on the, giving this uh, would probably read a long bio, but I'd, I'd like for you to tell us about yourself. So go go ahead. I'm gonna turn it over to you. All right. Oh well, I was got interested in birds when I was a little kid, and that's uh, always stuck with me. Um, I actually figured out I could make a living studying birds. That was uh, great news. Uh, I went to undergraduate, did my undergraduate degree in biology at Stanford in California, and then my PhD in Berkeley, uh, and uh, filed my dissertation and drove to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I started my job as a professor and curator of birds at the LSU Museum of Natural Science. And I just retired a couple of years ago. Great. And you, you had some big shoes to fill. Tell us about who you replaced. Uh, yeah, my hero, George Lowry. Yeah, yeah George Lowry is one of those uh, great men. He's uh, he's from Monroe, by the way, up there in North Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And uh, he took LSU from having essentially, you know, no biology program and nothing ornithologically speaking, and uh, made it a platform for ornithological research that, uh, you know, we're still trying to fill his shoes today. It takes takes two or three of us. Mm -hmm. He started the museum in 1936. Uh, I When he died in 78, uh, I followed in his footsteps, intimidated by the uh, size of the um, shoes I was going to try mm -hmm. to fill. He was uh, I mean, just to, the, the thing that gets me about George uh, Lowry is uh, what he must have overcome to get LSU into the position it is now. Mm. I, mean, I mean, you know, LSU is a pretty good school, uh, but it can't compete with the uh, you know, the the national recognition that someplace like Harvard or Berkeley uh, gets or something like that, but it does now in ornithology. Yeah. yeah. And that uh, is because of George Lowry. And, you know, it's, so it's here, here we are, LSU, and our big academic rivals are Cornell University, uh, University of Michigan, Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and and of all those, you mentioned this, you know, it, it kind of put the South on the map. You know, the, the it, it brought the attention to Louisiana, as you, as you alluded to. So that's yeah, nice. Exactly. And, yeah. It has made um, LSU a prominent, and Louisiana, yeah. a prominent place in, in ornithological history, really. Well, you, you took his big shoes and you made them bigger. So um, you certainly boosted the the collection and i've been most impressed by the number of students that you've advised both at the masters and phd levels um how many students did you direct when you were um at lsu i think about 20 to 25 phd students and maybe 15 master students wow. and, and yeah. you've kept up i'm sure with most of those and what kind of jobs did they obtain after getting their degrees? Well, I'm really proud of them. I, they, they have uh, spanned the globe, really. There's a there's an old boys and old girls network of LSU alums, uh, museums and universities across the Western Hemisphere. And so we have, um, our, our graduate students have prominent positions at 
the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, uh, the Field Museum of Natural History, uh, you, know, you name it. Nice. And and we're we are expanding our influence in South America as well. We have a number of our graduate students who are in prominent academic positions in South America. And uh, we're even making some inroads into Europe. We now have somebody in in Finland at hey. uh, at their big museum and university there. All right, that's great. So when helping these students find jobs, you know, you you're you're already in a position. You have a job, so you're helping these young students find positions out there. How, how have you seen the field of ornithology change over your tenure? Is it expanded? Is it diversified? What what kind of change? Yeah, it has. Uh, it has changed. It's diversified. Uh, the number of of museum only jobs has stayed about the same. Uh, the the big the big addition has been the genetics component. Mm -hmm. So if you're not working on DNA in birds now, it's uh, DNA or conservation biology. Mm. So if you're not working on DNA. Uh, or con bird conservation, it's the uh, job jobs are are limited. Yeah, because those museum positions, once somebody gets one of those, they're in it for thirty plus years often. Uh, if yeah, if they perform yeah adequately, they are. I, I got a I got a little story to tell you about oh, that. Okay, uh, that has to do with uh, LSU and its prominence. Mm -hmm. uh, probably ten or fifteen years ago. I got a call from the front office and they said, there's a somebody from a law firm from Washington, D.C. who wants to talk to you. Mm. And of course, you know, my you know, little butterflies, you know, what did I do? You know, have I done something wrong and so on? And it turns out that uh, um, maybe everybody else knew this but me, but LSU has lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Huh. Uh, and uh, you know, ivory tower, me, I didn't know, I didn't know this. And, uh, this guy was going to do me a solid favor. He was calling me up out of the goodness of his heart because he'd made some connections at the Smithsonian institution. And he was going to share those with me and maybe put me in touch with some ornithologists from the Smithsonian. Okay. <laughs> you know, the big name Smithsonian. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You know, little, little old me down here on the bayou. At, uh, at LSU. And I paused, there was this kind of this pregnant pause. And, you know, I could see this big ball coming right down the center of the plate, you know, and it just did exactly <laughs> what direction am I going to hit this? And I tried to, I tried to be nice, but I said, well, which one of my former students are you going to oh. uh, put me in contact with? Would that be Gary Graves or Terry Chester? They're the curator of birds at the Smithsonian. So Pete Mara at the Migratory Bird Research Center. Scott Silla at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. Uh, Mike Braun, I wasn't his major professor, but I was on his committee. He's mm. at the molecular labs there yep. in Washington. And uh, uh, so the, and there was this pause on his end. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, and he'd, he'd offer to say, he, you know, his, his big thing was maybe he could arrange for us to do some joint field work oh, with the Smithsonian people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and just out of pure luck at that very moment, I said, uh, you know, I had to tell him that, well, actually, there's a joint Smithsonian LSU field team in Guyana right now. Oh, wow. And uh, so there was this long pause at the end, kind of this awkward, you know, and he, I, mean, I felt kind of bad for him because he just had no idea, you know, and he was going to try to do me a favor. But the point is <laughs> um, that uh, uh, 
uh, well, we just for, refer to the Smithsonian as, uh, uh, you know, LSU on the Potomac. Yeah, and, and yeah, and so what's funny is you, you almost could have said, which one of my children are you going to hook me up with? You know, because yeah. they're, they're <laughs> well, students. Well, there's from... sort of a paternal, yeah. uh, yeah. paternal aspect here. You know, it's uh, uh, I really, really like to see them do well. Um, all of them are smarter than me, and uh, they're all really good people. And I enjoy watching them succeed and be happy. That's great. That's great. That's a great story, too. So let's change gears a little bit. You, If you moved to Louisiana in 78 for, what, four and a half decades, and you're, you said you've been a bird watcher since you were a kid. So you've been birding in Louisiana for, what, four and a half decades. That's right. So yeah. if you could tell us – we, we have a lot of beginners – on listening in and they might not know where to go bird watching and maybe jump around the state and mention a few places that you would recommend beginners go to look for birds that might be ex- sure. easily accessible and and usually quite birdy meaning you know it's a good hot spot right uh louisiana has it might not be the most diverse state in the united states but it has a couple things going for it. One is biomass of birds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there is any state, especially South Louisiana, that has a greater biomass of birds. So that's that's one thing uh, that I like to get beginners to, to go look at. And the other thing is, um, as probably most of your listeners know, we have spectacular migrations along the coast, mm-hmm. especially in spring. And uh, so to, to capitalize on those two big features, um, the place I, I like to recommend to beginners is Cameron Prairie National Wildlife Refuge in uh, south, of, uh, south of Lake Charles, uh, south of Iowa, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a, a driving loop. The birds are tame there. And you can see a lot of biomass of a lot of spectacular birds. They're not shot at. They'll stay. They're used to cars mm. and that kind of thing. So, uh, and a lot of cool birds too. A lot of, you know, things like purple gallinoles and roseate spoonbills and, you know, five mm-hmm. or six species of herons. In the wintertime, there's thousands of ducks there. In the evening, several thousand snow geese come in to roost. It's it's uh, one of my favorite places. Good. So. It, Great place to get interested in, uh, you know, if you're just starting, yeah, that's a great place to go. Okay. And um, then the other thing, unfortunately, access to those coastal woodlots where the migrants uh, sort of crash or fuel up if they're going south, crash if they're going north after crossing the Gulf of Mexico, the the access to those has become increasingly limited and mm-hmm. they're but there are two places that uh, I would strongly recommend. One is the, the Baton Rouge Audubon Society's Pivotal Woods Sanctuary in Johnson's Bayou. Mm-hmm. And so that's open. Uh, they got trails there. And if it's a good migration day, that's a great place to see a lot of uh, migrating birds. And then Grand Isle in uh, southeastern Louisiana might be a little bit far for some of your listeners is uh, is also in general a good place to see migrating birds and there are there are uh, sanctuaries there are nature conservancy properties and so on with trails 
that are also really good for seeing migrating warblers and tanagers mm -hmm. and buntings and grosbeaks and thrushes and so on. And if you hit it right, it uh, it really blows you away. So what, what months would you recommend those coastal woodlots? Well, April is the is the big one, mm -hmm. uh, but anytime from late March through mid-May, it can be good. It, it all, it's hit and miss. Okay. It all depends on the weather. Yeah. If um, in the spring, especially if the, if the, if it's stormy weather, the birds crossing the Gulf of Mexico have been fighting a headwind, maybe some rain. They want to land as soon as possible and refuel. And so that's the time, the bad weather is the time to go there. If it's good weather with a south wind, tailwind, a lot of those birds, even after crossing 500 miles of Gulf of Mexico, they just keep going in them. Mm -hmm. That's how in incredibly efficient they are with using their fuel is yeah. they don't even have to stop when they get to the, so it all, it all depends on the weather. Fall yeah. is a little hit or, hit or miss. Usually after a, a front is, is the best. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the sad things though, is that I, I just got to bring this up is that the, conservation um, uh, observation, the, the number of birds that you can see in one of these coastal fallouts has uh, declined dramatically since I've been in Louisiana. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very sad to see the uh, reduced numbers of birds that are crossing the Gulf of Mexico. The populations have declined in most of our North American migratory birds. Mm -hmm. Yep, same, same observation where I, I do high island area. I've been doing that religiously every spring since 1986. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can usually find onesies and twosies now where you'd get 12 to 15 in the past. And if it was fallout, you'd get, you know, 30 cerulean warblers and 50 blackburnians and yeah yeah but the numbers and it's hard to tell people that new, newcomers to it that it's not like it used to be and that's it's usually what old old people say to the young people yeah. <laughs> whether it's the food or the driving or anything in life but certainly with the birds you're, you're right that the numbers are just not there um yeah that's uh, exactly parallels everybody's experience here in Louisiana. Yeah. It's very sad. But for a beginner, uh, you know, onesies and twosies of Blackburnian warblers yeah. and scarlet tanagers and things like that can really spark people's interest. Right, There's right. nothing like a spring warbler uh, to, to dazzle somebody. Right. So you mentioned something with the first site that I thought was really a key for beginners is to start with, start with big birds that are visible. You mentioned gal noodles, spoonbills, ducks, herons. Um, that so any wetland is what I re recommend, like you did, is to where where to really start if you're a beginner because the bigger birds are just easier to find. Right. Um, these these warblers that you mentioned, that that's leaning you know more on getting out of the beginner realm because these are tiny little birds that might be if there's mature live oaks and hackberries and so forth they might be 60 feet up and and they're tiny little birds they're hard to see for for a new newcomer but yeah, start, yeah I mean, if you don't have uh, good binoculars yeah. and that kind of thing you know it's it's tough oh yeah and you've you've done it you've you've had the good binoculars and standing with someone that doesn't and and you're rattling off the colors of the birds and they're like what i don't see those colors because yeah. 
because binoculars matter. It's, um, you know, if you've got the yeah. $99 pair, you're, you're just not going to see as well uh, the colors and the, the other features. So, yeah, that does help. Well, one, one thing that, uh, that has happened, one change that has happened is that for about $300, you can get binoculars that are almost as good yeah. as those fancy, you know, thousands of dollars. That's right. Now, that's, that's, that's really has improved. Yeah. And one thing, I don't know about High Island. You know, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I've never been to High Island, uh, but uh, they have water features there, don't they? They do. Like bird, yeah. you're talking about bird drips and things. Right. Yeah, with bleachers yeah. set up where you can, you know, if, if you don't like walking or can't walk, it's, a, it's, it's like sitting on the couch and someone's constantly changing the channel on the TV with the remote in that the birds are coming and going from this water feature and all of a sudden there's a male indigo bunning and click someone changed yeah. the channel here comes two yellow warblers and so on and so forth and it's just it can be just crazy where you don't even put your binoculars down for several minutes and your arms hurt and that's yeah. such a great feeling to have. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I would encourage beginners to do. Yeah. Uh, there's a water drip at Pevado also. And if you just sit there and be quiet, mm. you let the birds come to you. It's like watching birds at your feeder, except that there are things like bay-breasted warblers mm. and scarlet tanagers and Baltimore Orioles and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned how these birds are flying over the Gulf. And so they're constantly exposed to salty air they haven't had a drink of fresh water so you're right the water feature for these land birds is critical they want to take a bath get get their feathers cleaned off of salty scum and and take a drink of the first fresh water they've seen in 500 miles so yeah yeah in 36 hours yeah that's right yeah they, they, some of these birds have been going for more than 24 yeah. hours and so, uh uh try that yourself sometime yeah that's right <laughs> So you mentioned something about binoculars, and it made me think about in in my early days there was really just the size ten by forty BGAs, and, and there was nothing else at the top tier. Right. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, mainly I think for target shooting and big game hunting, you know, you've got these other companies that started putting out really incredible binoc incredible binoculars, and the birders got wind of it, and now you've got all these Leicas and Swarovskis and high-end binoculars and thus choices, which, you know, back when I was in high school as a birder, there were no choices. You either shelled out a lot of money for the Zeiss or you, you had yeah. the, the cruddy ones that you couldn't see the true colors that I mentioned earlier. But what, what right. else have you noticed with the change in optics? Well, yeah, the same, same thing. But I, I think most importantly for, for most viewers, you don't want to spend a, you know, uh, you know, a couple thousand dollars on a pair of binoculars. Yeah. Now you can do really well. well I mean, there are top brands like Nikon uh, that put out binoculars in that three hundred dollar range. I mean, three hundred dollars yeah. is a lot of money, but it, you know, it's it's a, a cheaper than a phone. That's right. Oh, you know, that's every, everybody has point. to have a phone. It's good cheaper point. than a laptop, and, and, and it, yep. they they are almost as good. They really are. They're almost as good as any but the the ultra high end uh, Nikon and Leica and Swarovski binoculars. That's right. That's right. You're you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackelford. We have Dr. Van Remsen on the line. If you would like to call in with a question, 
The number is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. So continuing on, Dr. Remsen, um, so you mentioned some good places to go for beginners. How about for the, the more seasoned bird watchers, where are, if there are any, underbirded parts of Louisiana that, that need data, need information, where would you send them? Anywhere. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, it's kind of a facile answer, but uh, the sort of one of the problems of the birding scene now is um, it's always been somewhat of a problem is people just keep going to the same sweet spots. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, you can contribute a lot more by uh, finding a dirt road, country road in your in your home county or parish mm-hmm. or whatever and birding uh, along that road. Um, you know, any place that's uh, that's quiet, got some got some brush some vegetation has potential uh, to be good. You know, one thing I forgot to mention, Cliff, is up there, up there in northwest Louisiana, Red River, Red River Radio, mm-hmm. is Red River National Wildlife Refuge. It's yeah. got some great spots. So, you know, a lot of people in north Louisiana, for example, Cameron Coast and and so on is, is you know, that's a that's an ordeal to get there. But uh, Red River National Wildlife Refuge has got some fantastic spots. Yeah, good, good to point and, that uh, out. You're right. That's And that's so close to Bossier and 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 shreveport that it's almost a backyard birding spot that's right um, and then real uh, close uh someplace i need to go is uh david arbor's uh favorite spot up there in oklahoma the red river what is it the, is red, it the bluffs, red river? um yeah is it red bluffs what am i yeah yeah it's a yeah, that's a, it looks like a fantastic uh fantastic yeah. area red, red slough red slough yeah, yeah, that's it yeah. yeah it took me a minute yeah, yeah, they got they have uh, a lot of the birds that are in South Louisiana uh, mm-hmm. right there. Right, I can't wait right. to go. Okay, this is bird calls. We have Bob on the line. Bob from Nacogdoches, what do you have for us? Hey, Cliff, I just wanted to ask about sightings of a uh, wood ibis. Okay, uh, I drove in oh about two weeks ago and saw a uh, a group of big white birds on our stock pond mm. back close to the house and i thought well this is just one of our regular groups of uh, big uh, egrets but then uh, my wife went out and got a little bit closer and spooked them and saw the black underside of the trailing mm-hmm. edge of the wings mm-hmm. which we had never seen before mm-hmm. and got the peterson field guide out and the closest thing we could come was the uh, wood ibis right bird. right and, and wood ibis is is a little outdated that bird had a name change it's now wood stork okay yeah and uh but you're right you nailed the id and this is the a good time to see them and you mentioned stock tank and they they'll they'll go anywhere where the water's shallow um like the upper ends of reservoirs uh stock tanks like you mentioned um so and they're they're fairly common this time of the year 
And that's great that you saw some. How many did you see? 20, you said? About 15. 15. And they stayed around here for about a week and a half. Yeah. And we've got a great big dead oak right in their front yard. And some of them would roost in there overnight, maybe four or five. But uh, they would come and go, and then uh, then they disappeared, and I assumed that they were migrating. Yeah, yeah, very neat. Well, thanks hey, for the— Bob, can I jump in? Yeah, yeah, go hey, ahead. Bob, you know what the neatest thing is about wood storks is that uh, they are uh, what we call tactile feeders. They, if you watch those things feed in the pond, they feed with their bill open and they swish their bill around in the water. They're not looking for things, they're feeling for things. And so they, the reason they like shallow water, as Cliff said, is that that concentrates the fish. And so when they touch a fish, they close that bill. And I haven't kept up uh, in recent years, but at one time, that muscle twitch reaction of theirs was one of the fastest that had been measured in the animal kingdom. It was in milliseconds from the time they touch a fish till it closed on. Wow. Wow. That's neat. Yeah, and I was going to mention, Dr. Remsen, about we haven't had a confirmed breeding record in my state in Texas since about 67. And I don't know about your state, but I help me on We've this. Never had one. Okay. So the, the closest breeding, to my knowledge, is, is these birds are from – to probably Tabasco, Mexico is maybe the closest uh, breeding and that these are birds that uh, we call them post-breeding wanderers and they're they're leaving the breeding grounds and moving north to wander around looking for these stock tanks and other shallow areas for, for feeding this time of the year. Um, mm-hmm. And so do you, do you have anything to add to that on where they breed? Because, you know, well, some of them probably come from Florida also. Do, do we think that those birds are flying west? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that's yeah. one that's one thing I'd I'd love to see is a satellite backpack put on some wood storks in Mexico I, to see where where are they coming because the prevailing winds suggest that they're riding them north in the summer into Texas and Louisiana. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know I think there are some preliminary data there mm-hmm. out there they just haven't been published. Yeah. Well, Bob. Bob, thanks for the call. I'm glad you saw the. Uh, Wood Ibis, and Wood Ibis got married and took on a new name, and she's now Wood Stork. How about that? All right, thanks for the call. We have uh, another caller. We have Beth from Jefferson. Beth, what do you have? Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to ask Dr. Ramos or you, uh, I, um, I'm an older person and on limited income, and what what could he suggest for uh, a uh, uh, binoculars for someone on a limited income? That's just, I just, I mean, my my bird feeder is only like 15 feet from my back window. So what would he recommend for that? Uh, The, um, you can't go wrong with a pair of, Nikon uh, Monarchs. Now, the the problem is that uh, you're not going to be that happy with your binoculars until you can put about 300 bucks in. You know, and so if if you can save up 300 and get a pair of Nikon uh, Monarchs or something else in that price range, you'll never need another pair of binoculars. 
Okay. And then I wanted to tell Cliff that I had called earlier in the spring and my woodpeckers, uh, the ones that, um, had the, that look like they have a little tuxedo on and they uh-huh. have the dark red hair. Yeah, the red headed woodpecker. Yes. Okay. Did uh, we, we talked about that in the spring, you said? Yes. Okay. And they, they were here until about a month ago. And then I've been seeing a woodpecker that it, it looks kind of spotted down at the black, uh, back with mm. black and white. And I kind of just, uh, uh, Top knot of like a reddish orange color. Uh huh. That's probably a red bellied woodpecker, is the one could with that, the. Could, okay. He's still coming or she, whatever it is. Yeah. But the others, the other ones aren't. Could, yeah. that, could he have chased them off no, or? No, the, the red the red bellied woodpecker is a year round resident, doesn't really do a lot of movement. But the red headed woodpecker, Mr. Tuxedo, does yeah. a little bit of short-range migration, and it and they they don't fly across the Gulf per se. They don't go into the tropics like a lot of the birds we've been talking about tonight and in previous episodes. They they might just fly from a, a upland pine forest uh, into a river bottom somewhere, and they'll spend the winter in the river bottoms um, looking for mast acorns to get them through the winter time. So they, okay. they might fly, you know, it might be a bird from Missouri flying to East Texas, or it might be just a, your bird flying 30 miles or, or so to the r- nearest river bottom. So a short-range migration, and that's probably what you saw. So hopefully, Beth, um, your, your red-headed woodpecker will come back next uh, March, April, May, somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, th- thank you for the call, Beth. You're listening to Bird Calls on Red River Radio. This is Cliff Shackelford. Our guest is Dr. Van Remsen, uh, Professor Emeritus at LSU Baton Rouge. If you'd like to ask a question tonight, this is a call-in radio show. We've had a uh, nice couple calls already, and the number here is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. You can direct your question to me or to Dr. Remsen, and if you're going to throw a really hardball question i'm going to punt the ball to dr remson how about that uh well i thought we said uh, that nobody was going to have any questions that i couldn't answer didn't we did we agree on that yeah what we can do is pretend we can't hear them and drop the call oh, and and we'll we'll a, say that there must be a lightning storm somewhere in north america so that's a good idea right yeah, yeah. experienced radio host there huh? you go yeah well let's let's go let's go back to uh, louisiana um i have to ask about Cameron Parish, you know, any anybody in Texas, we have lots of nice counties to drool over, but not like Cameron Parish. So just right across from Jefferson County, Texas, is Cameron Parish, Louisiana. And you all have found some amazing birds, uh, vagrants, birds that aren't expected, birds that are maybe off track somehow. So what do you think is the reason for Cameron Parish being such a hot spot? Why there? Well, it, any place on the coast is going to be better than any place inland. Mm. So that's po- point number one. Point number two is that uh, from the Louisiana, strictly from the Louisiana perspective, we're always hoping from vagrants from the western United States. So you can't get any farther west in Louisiana than you can in Cameron Parish. 
Mm-hmm. And then number three, Cam- Cameron has a, a an exceptional, uh, what we call oasis effect. And that is that the band of coastal marsh there is extensive. I mean, they're not a whole lot of suitable land bird habitats uh, from the beach in 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40 miles. And uh, in Cameron, however, there is a ridge, coastal ridge, old beach dunes, it's where all the people live, is um, a high ground where there are lots of trees mm. and little coastal woodlots. So the birds that are flying around looking for a place to land uh, at, congregate, aggregate at those suitable spots. So that's why we call them an oasis. You know, mm-hmm. it's an oasis in a desert of Gulf of Mexico and, and unsuitable marsh habitat. And so you get to see a lot of birds. And uh, the more birds you look at, the higher the chances you you are going to have of finding one of those rarities that gets everybody's juices flowing. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier how people go to the same spot over and over. And I think you, you've got so many eyeballs in Cameron Parish that you know, if there's a rarity to be found, there someone's going to spot it. I mean, the right that the, uh, the, yeah. the, the most bizarre, it, in my opinion, and I'm going to ask you that if what tops the crown slaty flycatcher? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. That, that uh, Paul Conover and Mac Myers found the first North American record of that species. This is a species that breeds in southern South America, wow. and it's not even that common a species. Mm-hmm. And so in the southern uh, winter, which would be our summer, they fly north. Mm-hmm. And this particular crayon-slady flycatcher kept flying north and north and north <laughs> and ended up in uh, Pevado Beach Woods in, I think it was early June, first few days of June. Hmm. And so that was a, that was a, an astonishing record. Yeah. I think probably one of the best Louisiana's. The only, it's the only, my, probably the only record between Venezuela and uh, the United States. Remarkable. That, that bird right there. Yeah. yeah. Remarkable. Um, so while you're birding, you get hungry, you're traveling around Louisiana. Another thing that Texans drool over is the food that you have available. Uh, Cajun food, Creole food. So what do you ever change your route because oh i know a really good place to have lunch over here and if so tell me a little bit about the food and and if you're not into cajun food then just say so and we'll move on but i'm a a foodie i'm I'm into it i i just uh you know even though i've been here 40 years i don't have the uh, you know we ought to get uh, paul cone over or somebody like that on the phone right now uh I have two go-to spots, and one of them might not even be pure Cajun. There's a the Anchor Anchors Up Grill in Cameron, town of Cameron, uh-huh. has a sandwich. It's called the Kickin' Shrimp Pull Boy, uh-huh. and that sandwich has a flavor that is uh, unbeatable. They got good food in general. Okay. And then uh, the the other place now I have, and I the, the, that and. Uh, one other place, the only two places that I kind of go out of my way, you know, you know, my engineering, my birding route so that uh, I um, have a, an excuse to stop by there. The other place, and again, Paul Conover turned me on to this place, is uh, the famous 
uh, Best Stop, which is a uh, half mile north of the interstate in Scott, Louisiana. Mm. And it is a, it's not a restaurant per se, but they have everything you can possibly imagine. And it is good. And I will alter my birding route uh, to go make a run to Best Stop. Yes. The, uh, the chicken sausage gumbo oh. uh, that they, you can get frozen there has one of the best flavors I've tasted in uh, any food. Yum. Well, in, in Texas, we, we go out of our way for barbecue. We do birds and barbecue. So we're, we're je- I'm jealous of what you have um, there in Louisiana. So uh, awesome. Okay. Well, we- uh, if, you, if you have a chance to get some uh, smoked boudin. Uh-huh. Or boudin balls at yeah. uh, at, at uh, Best Stop in Scott. Uh, do it. Yeah. But you know you gotta you gotta be careful because you know, the 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 quality of something like boudin balls really and boudin in general just varies dramatically from place to place. So yeah. uh, we need we need to have a separate call in show for that. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Because when I was working there, there'd be. When Louisiana was hosting meetings, I was always hoping they'd pick the Wetland Center in Lafayette because there's so many good places to eat. Oh yeah, in Lafayette and yeah, Lafayette and, is it, it, Lafayette's the epicenter yeah. of of excellent yeah Cajun food. I, I I begged and pleaded to go to meetings over there. I, I it wasn't work for yeah. me to go to to Lafayette to talk birds and and eat good food. So love it. I I don't think you can go uh, wrong in Lafayette. The market is so competitive there that, you know, you want to stay in business. You better have good Cajun food. There you go. There Uh, you go. But as soon as you get closer to like Lake Charles, there's just way too much Texas influence in Lake Charles. You got to be really careful just an hour west of there. Right, right. Sorry, Lake Charles. Yeah. Okay, you're listening to Bird Calls on Red River Radio. We have a caller, Don from Henderson. Don, how are you tonight? Hey, doing fine tonight and enjoying the conversation about birding and also about binoculars. You were giving advice to the lady about what kind of binoculars to get in a low budget. And I've got a question for you. If you're looking for a good birding binocular and also a good astronomy binocular all in one so you can look at the stars and you know see a few moons around jupiter that kind of thing what would be an all-in-one binocular to cover both what's in the sky and what's in the bushes down here below Mm, good question dr remson i'm going to punt the ball to you what do you think i think i'm hearing a lot of static in the background (laughs) (laughs) isn't that what i'm supposed to say yeah good answer Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sorry, Don. Uh, <laughs> you know, once once you get away from birds, uh, I'd probably lead you astray. You know, I, I just can't give you a good answer. Yeah. Uh, I, I will put in another. I will say something else about bird binoculars. So that uh, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, Vortex is a good company mm-hmm. in general uh, too. You can't go. I don't think you can go wrong with Vortex. I think there's some. Uh, vortex binoculars that you can get at Amazon for 250 bucks or something like that. Uh, and you got to make sure you have at least seven power, uh, but no more than 10 power binoculars. Now, how that, how that works for astronomy, a lot of static. I can't. Yeah. Can't yeah. No, I, I think I think you're right. Another thing I want to point out about bird binoculars is they, they all now have what's called close focus. You can almost 
focus on your toes when you're looking through your own eyes down at your feet. Um, and, and this is good for uh, people that like butterflies because sometimes you can just get close enough to a butterfly that you can almost see the features, but it flies off. But it's, it's, you have to back up with the old-time binoculars. But nowadays, with the close focus, you can use those for a butterfly that's just six, eight feet away. Um, so it really helps. So that doesn't answer Don's question. So, Don, I think, you know, if, you, if you're going to get binoculars that you want to do both, I would say you want the, the biggest magnification that's the most common is 10, 10x, the first number. And, and that means basically everything is 10 times larger than the naked eyes, what it, what it roughly translates to. So that would help. But if you wanted to see the rings of Saturn, you're going to have to look at a spotting scope um, and, and probably talk to an astronomer for the appropriate optics there because that, that's just that's very much apples and oranges for, for what we're talking about, birds versus uh, planets. So. Okay, well, thanks for the call, Don. Um, let's get back. We've got a few minutes left, not much time left. I wanted you to, Dr. Remsen, I wanted you to talk about, you know, in your travels to the tropics, what it's like to see some of our breeding birds wintering in the tropics. So can you, can you give us a couple examples of species that breed in Louisiana and, and then where they might overwinter far to our south? Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize this. Uh, you know, it, eastern kingbirds are, are uh, this is uh, pretty close to peak eastern kingbird migration. And uh, all those eastern kingbirds that you're seeing are going to winter south of the Amazon in southern South America. And uh, it's, it's uh, uh, I've spent, uh, actually I figured out at one point, it's something like three years of my life in uh, Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru. Mm. And uh, it was just quite, uh, I don't know how to describe the feeling, um, on the Amazon River in Colombia, and I watch a flock of 300 eastern kingbirds wow. yeah. flying, flying south, you know, sort of a little touch of home uh, thousands of miles away from uh, where they breed. So it's uh, the, it, the amazing thing is how far these yeah. birds go in the wintertime. So eastern kingbirds, yellow-billed cuckoos, things like that, mm -hmm. winter mostly south of the um, south of the Amazon, not just south of the equator. Mm -hmm. that, that's pretty remarkable. Right. I, I remember early trips to the tropics where, you know, there'd be a lot of familiar birds from back home, and I'd be in a you know foreign country, and someone would say, oh, you're just wasting your time looking at those. You can see those in the U.S. And I thought, no way. It's so cool to see these guys here yeah. and plus the best part is they're familiar faces i i don't need a field guide exactly you know because i know what a magnolia and a black-throated green warbler look like and here they are so it is it's yeah. remarkable this little bird that weighs about the same as two nickels in your pocket uh can can make these trips and and uh it's just remarkable uh, yeah and it also it'd be an important point is that they need those tropical habitats for usually more than half of their life cycle. That's so we right. have a vested, vested interest in the integrity of uh, habitats in South America for quote unquote, our birds. Right. So uh, on a personal note, what, what's your favorite bird or bird family? 
Oh, boy. Um, my favorite bird I think that I've seen might be the Watson. Ah. The 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 Watson was a feature. It was almost always present at one of my study sites in Amazonian Colombia. And if you were to pick a bird that would be fit right in with a Jurassic Park type movie, it would be the Watson. Yeah. I mean, they are. Uh, primitive, weird-looking birds. They can barely fly. They really don't have a voice. They hiss at you. Mm. Uh, they eat plants. They're clumsy. And they just have that, you know, funny look to them that's unlike any other uh, living bird. And nobody, still, nobody knows. We're, we're working on the DNA of mm. Watsons. It, and it's, it's still it's, not exactly clear hmm. Yeah, who they're most closely related to Histori you know, among all modern birds. Historically, cuculid is it? Is it the thought? It's no, it's not a cuckoo. Uh -uh. Okay. It's it's out there. Okay. You know, if you were to think of it as a family tree mm -hmm. of birds, it is one of those early branches off that tree, and the uh, the the DNA data are uh, not yet uh, you know sophisticated enough to really show where that branch fits on the tree right right so for listeners that heard the name watson it has an interesting spelling h-o-a-t-z-i-n again h-o-a-t-z-i-n if you want to go to google and look up what a watson is but that that's a good good pick i like that that you, you you're yeah, familiar they, they with have the interesting biology too they're there's because they eat plants yeah very neat just like yeah, uh, because they're herbivores. Right. Just like a cow, mm -hmm. they've got gigantic digestive systems. Right. Huge intestinal tracts and all that. Well, thank you, Van Remsen. We appreciate you're that. Well. We, we have a conservation tip, but I don't know that I have time to read it. We, we had just too much cool stuff to talk about. Thank you so much for being on the show. This concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford. Resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, I thank our guest, Dr. Van Remsen, for joining us this evening for some great discussion. Bird Calls has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation in North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kermit Polling, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound recording of a brown-headed cowbird was by Jonathan Jongsma at xenocantu.org. The photo we used is snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, October 11th. And remember, do it for the birds.